There are some days that JB plans really thoughtful, contemplative songs that lead you into a moment of prayer right before you're supposed to preach. And then there are other days where he sings something that makes you want to charge the gates of hell. It's one of those days. It's easy to preach after that. Also, how the heck does he hit that note? <laughs> like, seriously. I can sing okay. I can't do that. All right. Whatever. God, I'm glad God gave him to us. All right. Let's go. First Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some uh, physical Bibles scattered in the, in the little racks underneath the chairs around the room. Uh, if you uh, don't own a Bible, we would actually invite you to take that one home. Uh, we love God's Word. We uh, trust God's Word. We um, dig deeply as we can into God's Word on a week-by-week basis. But God has given us the Bible for all kinds of important things. The chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to know him deeply, to be defined by that knowing him deeply, shaped by that knowing him deeply. And if the scriptures are what he uses to, to do that in your heart and life, then, then it seems kind of wise and like common sense to be reading the Bible as much as possible. And so pick that, take that one home, uh, call it yours, whatever. Um, so we are walking through the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, and, and we're getting so close to the end of this thing. We're almost there. There are 16 chapters in, in 1 Corinthians. We're halfway now through chapter 15, and I can tell you now, chapter 16 is only going to take one week. So if you're doing the math in your head, we're, we're like shutting this thing down the last week of September. And so we're getting so close to the end of this thing, just a couple more weeks. And so if you haven't been here, if you don't have much of a church background, don't have much of a, of a Bible background, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a very young, very talented, and also very arrogant young church in the Greek city of Corinth. And so they had a lot going on there. There was uh, a lot of really good things happening there. Paul was there in the beginning of the Corinthian church. Uh, to use the churchy vocabulary, he planted the church in Corinth, or he was like their first pastor, if you want to call it that. And so uh, Paul was there at the very beginning uh, as this church in Corinth got formed. And so he knows this church incredibly well. Right? He was there for about a year and a half, and he has been gone for upwards of three to four years right, by this point. So we think this letter was written somewhere between 53 and 55 A.D., and so my theory leans a little more towards the latter end of, of that time point. But here's, here's what we need to know about whatever the date for the letter is. Paul hasn't been gone very long. He was there at the beginning. He hasn't been gone for more than just a few years. And so he knows people here personally. These aren't strangers to him. These are people he loves dearly. These are people he played a role in in them coming to faith. Right? These are people that he was around for, maybe served the Lord's Supper to, did pastoral counseling with. He knows these people backwards inside and inside out. There may have been some turnover in the time since he's been gone. Every church goes through that. But Paul knows this church about as well as any person not attached to this church could know this church. And so he writes this letter to them with a deep and pastoral concern. He loves them dearly. He wants an infinite level of good for them. So he continues to press in. He continues to engage despite their mountain of problems. We're told that he has sent at least one letter to them by this point, and we're told also that they had sent at least one letter back to Paul by this point. And so you got this kind of this special letter where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows the, the junk that they're going through. Like, like they, they, they just know. They, they know each other and Paul wants good for them. And, but everybody's jockeying for position. Everybody's trying to get their pet 
project to the front of the line. And they're just characterized by a lot of immaturity and pride. And so Paul's overarching approach throughout the course of this letter is to kind of repeatedly show them that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from all the kingdoms of this world. It values different things. It celebrates and exalts different things. It cherishes different things. And, and, and just to be honest, like, like the, as we've walked through this letter, we, we've kind of come to the conclusion that there are sometimes there's some things that, that are going to be hard for those of us who are coming out of these other kingdoms, folks like me. Who, there's going to be some things that are really hard for us to wrap our heads around, things that we're not really sure we buy into the logic of just yet, things that we're not really sure we want to value more than the things that we would naturally value. And there are going to be moments when the logic and the values of God's otherworldly upside-down kingdom feel unnatural to us. Now, if you really start digging into that reality, I think you'll discover really fast that we're the ones that are actually upside down, not God's kingdom. That God's kingdom operates in the, way, in the most logical way possible, and we're the ones that are kind of doing things in the upside down way. But when you're in that moment, that's not what you're thinking. You're just disoriented. You're trying to make sense of things. And so the questions that we've been training ourselves to ask whenever we find ourselves in these moments of disorientation are really simple ones. Is it beautiful? I, like, okay, it's, it's difficult right now, but is it good? I'm not, I'm not sure I like it yet. Okay, well, but is it true? Does it have eternal value as the rest of the world seems to be fading away really quickly? You see, if the answer to those questions are yes, if we can truly, honestly say yes to those questions, well, then that moment of disorientation, it's not really a gulf. It's more like a hurdle. We've got to jump the hurdle and keep running. Because the hurdle is just this little flimsy thing that's standing in the way of an eternal happily ever after. There's infinite joy on the other side of it. So we made it most of the way through this letter now. A couple weeks ago, Paul introduced the, the last of what I would call his four main branches of concern, four main uh, branches of topic in this letter. And so he gets to the final one, the resurrection, right? And so Paul starts out of the gate a couple of weeks ago uh, by arguing that Jesus's bodily resurrection was both a promised reality and a demonstrably factual reality. Meaning, it was telegraphed all the way back in the garden. Like the snake is told what's coming down the pipe before Adam and Eve got their punishments. All right? And so this is, this is a massive promise that is carried along all the way throughout the Old Testament when it finally gets to Jesus. But it's not just telegraphed. It's not just a promise all the way back in Genesis. There's also a ton of people standing around when it happens. Go ask them. Like Paul starts naming names and says, this dude's still alive. Just get on a boat and go. He'll tell you his story. And then last week, last week Paul came back and argued that, that because Jesus was raised bodily, he is the first fruits of our own resurrection. Like that first tomato off the vine before all the other ones are ripe. It's special and it lets you know what's coming. And so we have a hope of a bodily resurrection because Jesus has defeated and is defeating death itself. He's our first fruits. And that's a gigantic implication, right? Like the, the, the string of good things that flow out of that starts clearly with, with that. But 
it, it doesn't end with that. That's not the only implication of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, like, like that's one that, that, that plays out in our future for sure, but there's also a thousand implications that, that have an effect on today as well. They play out in the here and now. Because Jesus has done what Jesus has done, the finish line has been moved to a different location. The goalposts have been moved in the best way. Everything about our lives, about the way we make sense of the world around us, has changed on a fundamental level. The level of our eyes has been raised, and we now chase after eternal victories rather than just temporary ones. If Jesus really did raise from the dead, it changes what you aim at. Resurrection isn't merely something that affects tomorrow. It affects everything in front of us today. So we got the fact of Jesus' resurrection. We've got the implications of our own personal resurrection for those found in Jesus. But if you're in Paul's original audience, there's this gigantic question that you really want next, right? What, what do you think it is? What do these resurrection bodies look like? Give me some details, Paul. Well, Paul's going to give us some details. Look at verse 35. Chapter 15, verse 35. Paul says this, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So there it is, right? Two different questions, but I think there's actually the same root question that's buried inside of both of them. This is a tell me how moment. Give me some proof. I'm not sure I, I buy your logic yet, Paul. So why don't you spell this out for me? Remember from last week, Paul is uh, he's addressing a, a group of people who were willing to buy into the logic that, that Jesus rose from the dead. He did that really special thing one time, but they weren't really convinced that they wanted that for themselves. You remember that? That they had allowed the Greek philosophical idea of dualism to kind of invade their, their theology of the resurrection. And so there was this false dichotomy for them between the material world, something they saw as irredeemably burdened, and the immaterial world, which is something that they wanted to finally get to. They needed to escape their material selves. They needed to escape their physical bodies and finally be free from that nonsense and experience the fullness of whatever it was they wanted to experience the fullness of. And so to the educated Greek mind, the one that thought themselves enlightened, we don't have any of those kind of people in our own day, right? so they thought that the body was something that needed to be escaped from in order to finally be fulfilled. Your body was holding you back from your fully realized potential. And so, if you're looking at a human body with all of its weaknesses, with all of its bumps and warts and bruises, with all of its, you know, 100% chance of dying one day, to hear the teaching, the message that the body is some, is some kind of eternal reality, I mean, you got to admit, it doesn't sound all that attractive to you. If you're carrying around a worldview that thinks it's better to distance yourself as far as possible from your physical body, from that brokenness, the idea of a bodily resurrection sounds appalling, repulsive even. But there's a gigantic flaw in that logic. Have you seen it yet? Paul points it out in verse 36. He says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Okay, so there are a couple of main hang-ups that the Corinthians seem to have had concerning uh, the resurrection of the body. The first one was that, that alien dualism that we just talked about. And so it's wrong-headed, it needed to be rebuked, all that, uh, that kind of stuff. But the second hang-up seems to kind of come out of left field, just kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, they assumed that the body being raised was of the same substance, exactly the same substance as the body that went into the ground. They go, I don't want that. I mean, do you? Do you want that? I don't think I want that either. They saw the clear brokenness of the world, and they saw the clear brokenness of their bodies, and it caused them to hear the teaching of the resurrection as never being able to escape their brokenness. And Paul could choose in this moment to go gentle, or he could choose to be not so gentle. I don't know if his personality played a role in this or if it just called for it, but he seems to go for the not-so-gentle approach. He says, you foolish person. Now, in our culture, we tend to use the word fool in a more comedic sense. There's, uh, we, 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 it definitely means something not good, but we kind of use it as a, as a way of mocking just a little bit. We, we, there's a lighter tone to, to that than some other vocabulary words that we could choose to use to describe the same person. But in the vocabulary of the Bible, this word, the word foolish, it carries a much, much heavier tone to it. There's a layer of contempt buried in this word. Contempt. Why? Well, because the fool is senseless to the point of being reckless and wasteful and causing damage to others. They need to be rebuked before they hurt themselves and hurt more people. They need to be turned aside before too much is lost. Paul says they're getting hung up here on something that should never hang them up. They shouldn't be struggling over this. You're rejecting one of the most beautiful things about what Jesus has done and is doing for no other reason but because you can't seem to wrap your head around it yet. They, they struggled to put the pieces together. They didn't have all of the answers that they wanted. And so they said, no, nah, I just don't want that for me. So Paul goes, he just kind of goes into dumb it down mode here. And he goes, he says, what goes into the ground is changed. Starts out by throwing a, out a bunch of real-world illustrations uh, to, to kind of prove that, kind of prove that God's kind of always been doing things this way. Um, starts off by talking about planting a seed, right? Like, what does it say in verse thirty-seven? What you sow is not. The body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. He starts kind of talking about a seed. Like, who's talking about seeds right now? Paul points to something that's already happening a bajillion times a day in the world. A seed has to die in the ground in order to produce new life. Hey, so here's a fun little philosophical question for you to kind of toss around in your head this morning. Is an oak tree... The exact same thing as the acorn it grew out of. Yes or no? In some very real ways, the answer is yes. And in some very real ways, the answer is no. Right? In some very real ways, the answer is yes. And in some very real ways, the answer is no. All of the genetic code for that oak tree was in the acorn. Every bit of it. 
The germline of that tree's family history is buried in the acorn. It's all there. But at the same time, something is clearly different, right? You think that oak tree just kind of unfolded itself? Something has changed when it came out of the ground. Oh, and by the way, the oak tree doesn't need you to be able to wrap your head around the process in order for it to be an oak tree, right? It, you put the acorn in the ground, you just get out of the way. Praise God, man, that he's created an orderly universe and given us the capacity to, to search out these things and attempt to understand these things. That is a good gift from the good creator who has created us to image himself. Absolutely chase that down. But at the same time, God also created the oak tree in such a way that they don't need us to understand it for it in order to, for it to be a great oak tree. It doesn't need your understanding. God's doing something. He took care of it, and he doesn't need our input. The same is also true with our resurrection bodies. What goes into the ground will be changed. Listen, even if it doesn't make sense to us yet. It's okay to go, huh? So put our earthly bodies in the place of the acorn. Are our earthly bodies the same as what is to come? In some very real ways, the answer is yes. And also in some very real ways, the answer is clearly no. There's, there's something of continuity there, but it's not the same Thing. And this is one of the reasons that we, we need to be good stewards of our bodies now. Not as, not as some kind of desperate attempt to, to cling to health here or cling to life here, try to stave off death as long as possible. That's not what we're aiming for. You can exercise and eat all the spinach you want. You're still going to die one day. It's coming. It's just coming. Now, we, we take care of our bodies because... Not because we have the hope of escaping death. And we take care of our bodies because there seems to be at least some, and I don't know how much is some, but there seems to be at least some level of continuity between what we are now and what we will one day become. So we're good stewards of that. You don't abuse the seeds that you're getting ready to plant. It's just a bad idea. And so too, we should take care of our bodies. We've got to plant them one day. Don't knock them around. But Paul's got several more real-world illustrations for us to consider. Look at verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, and another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 41. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory for the, of the stars. For stars differ from stars in glory. So, not only does God, like, have a pretty lengthy track record of taking something that seems insignificant and turning it into something significantly more glorious, but he also has come up with a few things a lot more glorious than an oak tree. I don't know if you're paying attention to the world around you. Oak trees are pretty awesome, but I can think of some things that are even more awesome. The good creator dreamt up and then didn't even break a sweat creating hundreds of thousands of different types of creatures for his glory. Some of those creatures walk and some of those creatures swim and some of those creatures fly. And then you got ducks which get to do all three. I don't know how that works. Don't trust a duck. They've got these special things. 
Some of God's creatures, they run fast. And some of them see in the dark. Some of them live their entire lives in the depths of the ocean and no human eye is ever going to see them. And some creatures seem to only exist for the purpose of eating the stuff that annoys us. I like those. It's my favorite kind of creature. Get that mosquito. But that's just the stuff we call animals. Paul says that God also created earthly bodies and he created heavenly bodies. So what are heavenly bodies? I don't know. I don't know. Um, if, you, if you're a fan of the King James, it translates that phrase as celestial bodies. It attaches whatever that Greek word is to the sun, moon, and stars line that's coming after it um, that Paul's going to talk about next. The problem, though, is that Paul is clearly mentioning sun, moon, and stars later as an addition to the list, not an explanation of what he just said. Uh, in verse 41. And so I think a better translation of the Greek, if you want to get into that, would say that these are bodies that originate from the heavens. That would be the proper way of translating that, originating from the heavens. And so a lot of people think that Paul is definitely talking about angelic bodies here. Whatever in the world like angelic bodies are made of, I, I don't know, but they seem to be different than us. But we do know that God created them. We know that they are different from us and that God designed them that way for his glory. And there are some who try to take an extra step and try to take that line and make it mean that, that our bodies are kind of somehow turned into angelic bodies, uh, same substances, whatever angel bodies are. I mean, it sounds really cool. The problem is it just intellectually dishonest with this verse. That's not what Paul's saying. What he is saying, though, what he is clearly saying is that God is absolutely capable of creating entire things that are entirely different from what we are now. He's absolutely capable of creating multiple types of creatures. It's not something he's going to have to sit down and try to figure out when the time finally gets here. You ever met somebody who's just a, a chief procrastinator? They work best at the last moment. And so they'll put something off, and so they'll put something off, and then they'll put something off, and then five minutes before the project is due, whatever comes out of their head is gold. You don't want what they dealt with two weeks ago. You want the five minutes before. God's not like that at all. He's not going to have to put it off and put it off and put it off and then come up with something at the end of time going, I promised some bodies. I don't know what to do. No, he's already doing. He's already doing. He's not going to have to rush at the last minute to create some new type of creatures. It's something he's already doing all along, and he has not exhausted the limits of his creativity yet. He didn't cash out at the end of creation going, that's all I got, boys. Hope you don't need anything else from me. I'm going to go take a nap. Paul points to the animals, and he points to bodies originating from the heavens. But those aren't the only things that God has created. Paul then points to the sun and the moon and the stars, and even each star differs from one another. All designed by he who is infinitely created, by he who is infinitely powerful, by he who is infinitely capable. The Corinthians were hung up on the resurrection, all because they couldn't figure out the finer details. And Paul's like, just pick something. 
close your eyes, spin around in a circle, open your eyes back up again. Whatever your eyesight lands on, that thing right there was magnificently created by the God who dreamt it up, and he will have no problem at all recreating it into something even better later on when he chooses to. He's got it. Pick something. You're tied up on your bodies? <laughs> you don't need to be. Look around you. Everything God has created has this same beauty, this same design, and some of it's more awesome than you are. He's, he's in control. He's okay. You don't have to worry. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. The God of heaven is fully capable of resurrecting your body with a greater glory than what you experience now. The one who created and actively holds the solar system together. You guys, he's not stumped by what to do about your nearsightedness and your trick knee. He's okay. He's got it handled. So Paul says this in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul gets to the point in his argument where he's just kind of done inferring things. Then he's ready to start declaring things. All right, so no more illustrations. He puts the illustrations down. It's time to tell you what we can trust in. And so he starts contrasting our, the bodies that we have now with the bodies, the resurrected bodies that we will one day have. And, and so he says perishable versus imperishable. Man, at the moment, our bodies suffer, right? Does anybody doubt that? Our bodies suffer under the... Under the effects of sin in this world. Paul tells us in another place that the wages, the thing rightfully earned for sin is what? So our broken bodies, they feel the weight of, of this brokenness. Paul says they're perishing, they're dying away. And, and like, let's be honest, we can feel that oncoming depth, death deep down in our bones, right? And, and, and I know I know it's a dangerous thing for me to say out loud as the reasonably healthy guy in my late 30s. Some of y'all are twice my age, and you know that I don't know what I'm talking about yet. I get it. I haven't experienced or anything really hard yet. But that just proves even further that Paul knows what he's talking about, doesn't it? The fact that I clearly don't know, means Paul does. Your bodies are wasting away. What is sown is perishable. What is sown is perishable, and it seems to be growing more and more perishable every day, right? But what will be raised? Imperishable. Gone forever. Forever will be the effects of sin on the body. What is dishonorable or, or what we could say, what brings us embarrassment or shame, it will be raised instead in glory. What is weak now, it will be raised in power. Oh, what a day that will be. What a day. But in verse 44, Paul shifts just a little bit. He says, what is sown is a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. So, so what's Paul talking about there? 
Because on the surface, I mean, let's be honest, it seems like he's opening the door again to that dualism stuff he just knocked down. Creates this weird dichotomy between natural and spiritual. And so the question kind of re-emerges for us. Are our resurrected bodies physical or not? And if this verse is all we had to speak to the issue, then, then it's kind of possible for people to argue no. Seems to be what Paul's saying, but we, we don't just have this verse. Um, we have a lot of places that we can look. One of those places is that we need to call back to something that Paul has already said earlier in this letter. Uh, it's week 27 for us in this series. Um, we started this the very first Sunday of October, and there's been a bunch of other stuff that we have sprinkled in. And so we have almost made it a full calendar year since we started this series. And so there's some things for us that, that we read and dealt with like 10 months ago, but Paul's audience would have sit, like read this in one sitting. The things that we've dealt with 10 months ago are things that they would have remembered reading 10 minutes ago. All right? And so we need to keep that in mind. Back in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul tells them that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but, he, but is himself to be judged by no one. So back in chapter 2, Paul uses the exact same natural versus spiritual language, not to create a dichotomy between material and immaterial stuff, but to show that those whose hearts belong to Jesus are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and now think differently about the world around them. That's where he uses that language for. That's the first time he uses it. They have entered into a new kingdom and they have a spiritual mind rather than just a material mind. And because of that change, they now play by a different set of rules. So Paul brings that same language back here to chapter 15 to show us that, that we await a spiritual upside-down kingdom body to go along with our spiritual upside-down kingdom minds that we've already been given. We wait for the day. And then he leans on that two-kingdom dynamic a little bit more in verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Hey, we get to talk about federal headship again. Yay! You're not excited, as excited as I am? All right, fine. I like federal headship. It's fun. And we covered this a little bit last week, right? Those, there are those who belong to Team Adam, and because of their faith and trust in Jesus, there are those who belong to Team Jesus. Adam was created from the dust. Life was breathed into him by God, and so Adam became a living being when God breathed in that life into him. But the new Adam, the one who accomplishes what Adam could never accomplish on our part, perfect obedience to God, perfect faithfulness to the Father, perfect sinlessness before a holy and righteous God, and it's by his perfect righteousness that he is able to save others so he's become a life-giving spirit being born of the first under the first adam's representative head we are dust just like he was just like 
he was. But being born on, again under the new Adam's representative head, we are given new and eternal life. And that new life, man, like, like everything else in God's upside down kingdom, it seems to have an already but not yet dynamic to it. There are parts of the promise that have been realized and parts of the promise that have not yet been realized. We are justified and we are being sanctified and we will one day be glorified. So too with our bodies. Not all of the promise has been fulfilled yet. What is sown is perishable. It's dishonored. It's weak. It's a bare kernel. But what is to be raised has been changed. The day is quickly coming when what is sown will be forever changed beyond what we can even begin to make sense of today. And in that moment, church, in that moment, we will be dumbfounded by what God has done and God will rightly receive the glory He is due for every bit of it. That day's not quite here yet. Right? I mean, we wish it was. The day's not quite here yet, but listen, it's a day closer than it was yesterday. We can celebrate that. Can you feel it? Paul gives us the impression that we ought to look forward to that day and be pretty excited about that day. It's a good thing. But in the meantime, there's a much better question to answer, at least for this morning. How will you experience that day? It's a massive question whether you realize it or not. How will you experience that day? See, the Bible doesn't say much about the resurrection of the just. Our job is to, to, to trust that, that God's word is true and that he's going to do every bit of what he has promised. The Bible says even less about the resurrection of the unjust, but it doesn't say nothing. It says something, and again, we trust that what he said is true and that he will fulfill everything he's promised to do. Just as the Bible is clear that those who belong to Christ will be raised again to experience the fullness of joy in his presence forever, the Bible is also crystal clear that all those who do not follow Christ will be raised again to experience the fullness of his wrath forever. We can be excited about the one, not so excited about the other. Urgently called to do something about the other. See, the hope of the resurrection that we are celebrating today, that, that's, that, that's not for those who have struggled in this world, and it's not for those who have been down on their luck just a little bit or suffered much, although that, that sounds cute, I get that, but the Bible promises that the resurrection that we've been celebrating today are for those who have repented of sin and placed their trust, their faith in the work of Jesus and Jesus alone to save them. The Bible teaches that all people by default are separated from God relationally because of our sin, that, that we are owed the righteous punishment for that sin, death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy, that he loves us with a great love, and that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive by his grace through Christ. How does he do that? God the Father sent God the Son. Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. 
He lived the sinless life that I'm not capable of living. He died on the cross in our place to make full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the one who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to put your trust in him, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That'll be a time for us to, to respond to God's word. I'll be down front here if you want somebody to talk about it. I'd love to talk to you. What if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How can we respond to God's word? Same way we do every single week. We, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is showing us about himself in the text. And this week, man, I think he's showing us that he is both sovereign and capable over everything he's promised to do. Everything. He's not making this up as he goes. He's not, he's not making promises with no real plans to, on how to pull them off. In fact, he seems to have telegraphed everything he's going to do in the future with a bajillion things he's already built into creation now. He's good like that. And I think he deserves the praise that naturally arises out of us whenever we finally pay attention to what he's doing. When we catch a glimpse of who he is and what he has done, it, it ought to, to spur some things in us and out of us. So we praise him. So that's our response this morning. We celebrate his goodness and we celebrate his design. And yeah, we even celebrate all the things that we haven't figured out what he's doing yet. Especially those things. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe God's calling you to be obedient in baptism. Let's talk about that. Or maybe God's calling you to formally join this church family. Let's talk about that too. Maybe, just maybe, it's time to publicly say yes to the call that God is laying on your heart to take the gospel to some faraway place. <laughs> the happiest you'll make me today. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning, let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the promise of resurrection. First in your son, and then all those who belong to him. Would you open our eyes to what you're doing? Would you help me pay attention to the thousand things in front of my face, even right now, that prove that you are capable and good and playing the long game? God, would the, the future promise of resurrection change how I live this morning? to turn me into a new person that values things on an eternal scale rather than what's probably going to fade from my memory in about 30 seconds. Help us as a church to celebrate you and your promises well. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you call men and women into your kingdom today? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.